The Presidencies of the United States is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. And I'm joined by my co-host today for the Vice Presidencies of the United States, Alex. Hello, Alex, everyone. thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Jerry, for having me. And hello, everybody. So we are in a new year and we are at a new vice president. Before we get started, Alex, how are you doing? I'm, I'm good. It's a bit cold. It's been a bit of a busy day so far, but hey, ready to learn more about this fellow named Burr. Burr. For better or worse. It, this is the perfect day to be talking about somebody Burr. named Burr, <laughs> because it, it we are going through a cold snap here in North Carolina, and we're not getting above freezing today. So we figured this was a good time to stay in and record and talk about a vice president. And especially, this is a vice president who there is a great deal to discuss. So before we get started, Alex, what do you know about Aaron Burr going into this? He's a right, I'm not going to say it, but <laughs> <laughs> he's a bit of a challenging uh, character from what I understand. And I know many of our listeners know him from the Hamilton musical, and that's generally one of the, if people know Aaron Burr, they know this is the guy who shot Alexander Hamilton. Mm. Mm -hmm. But as we'll see, there is much more to him than... That and sometimes it meets the eye. Mm. So one of the things to note here is that unlike our first two vice presidents we've covered, so we covered John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, Burr did not become president. And I'm sure some would say, thankfully, he did not become president. So we actually have to cover his entire life and career, not just focus on his vice presidency, because he hasn't gotten a full presidency series to date on the podcast. So are you ready to dive into Burr? The world of Burr. 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 <laughs> yeah, sure. Let's do it. All right. Once we get done, we will be back after this message and we'll dive into Burr. This is Peter. And this is Tom. We want to tell you guys a little bit about our podcast. Tom and I met in college, became best friends, and then teachers almost 20 years ago. Sometimes school just does not allow us to elaborate on the topics that we find interesting, like the real shark attacks that inspired the movie Jaws, or the real historical context to Indiana Jones artifacts. Where does cereal come from? Or are zombies real? Does Ben Franklin really deserve to be on a $100 bill? On our podcast, just like in our class, there are no stupid questions. Just two friends having a lighthearted conversation about history, pop culture, and the context of current events. Listen to History Teachers Talking Podcast from Evergreen Network, anywhere you get your podcast. All right, we are back. So, Alex, let's start exploring the life of Aaron Burr. Aaron Burr was born on February 6, 1756, in Newark, New Jersey the son of Aaron Burr Sr., surprise, surprise, and Esther Burr. Now, on his mother's side, Aaron was the grandson of the Reverend Jonathan Edwards, 
at the time, most famous theologian in the British American colonies. His father, Burr Sr., was, at the time of his birth, president of the College of New Jersey, the institution that is today known as Princeton University. And it's interesting because uh, Princeton keeps on coming back into, you know, I know with the Seat at the Table series, we've had a few folks who have been Princeton alums. So it just keeps on coming back into the story. Yep, that keeps on giving. (laughs) Exactly. So Burr Sr. was the youngest of 13 siblings whose father passed away when he was six. Thanks to his inheritance from his father, Burr Sr. had been educated at Yale and became a Presbyterian minister in 1736. He had served as the college president since 1748, one of only four college presidents in the colonies. So this helps to give us a sense of just how prestigious this post was for him. It would be during Burr Sr.'s tenure that the now-famous Nassau Hall was completed on the college's campus. At the time, it, quote, was the largest building in British North America. Three stories high, with 60 rooms, Nassau Hall included everything under one roof, library, chapel, dormitory rooms, and recitation halls. His mother Esther was described as having a unaffected, natural freedom with a lively, sprightly imagination, a quick and penetrating discernment. She knew how to be facetious and sportive, without trespassing on the bounds of decorum. She spoke up and admonished someone who was serving as a tutor at the College of New Jersey because he, quote, made disparaging comments about women. So it's interesting, and this is something I want you to kind of hold on to as we go along, this early example of a strong female figure in his life and somebody who wasn't afraid to speak out. Go, Esther, go. (laughs) Aaron was the second child born to the couple his sister Sally being two years older. When he was eight months old, Aaron suffered from a serious illness, and his parents worried that he would not survive. However, as because we're talking about him, he did eventually recover, but it wouldn't be long before illness befell the family once more. Mm. Burr Sr., upon returning home on September 5th, 1757, after preaching a funeral sermon, fell ill and took to his bed. On September 23rd, he passed away. Good grief. Aaron fell ill again a few weeks later, but recovered. Esther's father, the Reverend Jonathan Edwards, came to Princeton to take over as president of the College of New Jersey following the death of his son-in-law. But in March 1758, he passed away from smallpox. Good grief. Esther then caught the disease, despite being inoculated, and she passed away on April 7th. Goodness. Esther's mother, Sarah Edwards, then came to Princeton to collect her grandchildren and gather the belongings of her deceased husband and daughter. But she fell ill with dysentery later in the year and passed away on October 2nd. Wow. There's got to be a curse of something on that house because that's just hardcore. So let's just go through this. So it was his father, his father, his grandfather, grandfather. mother, and then grandmother. And so the, the children died before the parents in this case. Yes. So the children, well, so the father died and then his daughter died and then the mother died. Okay. So. Gotcha. Wow. And in the midst of all this were Sarah and Aaron, Mm. who were now left as orphans. Okay. That's explaining some things now, I guess. Yeah. 
So very rough start to his life. After temporarily being taken in by a family friend, the two children were eventually taken in by their mother's younger brother, Timothy Edwards. They would not be the only new children in the household as Timothy and his wife Rhoda took in Timothy's five younger siblings from ages 10 to 20 years old, as well as Rhoda's two younger brothers. So they're taking in not only these, um, their niece and nephew, but also his siblings and her siblings. Wow. That's, that's got to be a chaotic household. You can imagine. This seems like a sitcom ready to happen. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this large family lived for two years in Stockbridge, Massachusetts, before moving to Elizabethtown, New Jersey. Burr's biographer Nancy Eisenberg described Elizabethtown as, quote, a fairly prosperous colonial town. Edwards took up the practice of law and was successful enough to support a growing family, as apparently Timothy and Rhoda would go on to have, wait for it, 15 children. Good God. <laughs> okay. I, 15 this, kids. This family. Is there good any God. downtime? I mean, good. Apparently Please. not. It's like, yeah, <laughs> put one in the oven and, oh, wow. Never mind. <laughs> There are a lot of kids in this household. A lot of kids in this household. Lord of the flies. <laughs> <laughs> How did they prevent them from just taking over? Burr, the youngest of the adopted children in the household, was described by one of his uncles at the age of seven as, quote, hardy, goes to school, and learns bravely. Not sure how one learns bravely, mm. but he apparently did. Okay. Through his parents' connections, as well as those of his adopted parents, Burr grew up making, quote, lasting connections with the sons of the town fathers of Elizabethtown, who would go on to be leaders at the state and national level. According to Burr, at the age of 10, he ran away from the home of his uncle and guardian and attempted to go out to sea. The uncle, quote, climbed aboard ship to fetch his errant ward. Hoisting himself to the top of the ship's mast, the lithe young boy skillfully negotiated a truce on his terms. His uncle agreed to let him return home without a beating. Mm, goodness. So, Aaron Burr getting out of a scrape. This is another thing you may want to put a pen into. Uh-huh. A year later, Burr applied to attend the college in New Jersey. Understandable. As Eisenberg explained, quote, Colonial colleges were more like today's preparatory schools and Princeton's student body had young men of all ages. Still, the trustees and faculty at the time felt that Aaron was too young and denied his application. So despite that learning bravely, they're like, you need a little, little more time. Mm -hmm. Burr spent the next two years studying the college's curriculum so that when he reapplied in 1769, he would get in. While they denied his request to enter as a junior, they did agree to admit him as a sophomore. Even in that class, quote, Burr was still four years younger than most of his classmates, and his youth set him apart. Burr would move into the building, Nassau Hall, that his father oversaw the construction of. As described by Eisenberg, quote, Burr studied incessantly, up to 18 hours a day, and like his fellow students, he was restricted to his room during long study periods. Forbidden to go out for more than 10 minutes at a time. Hmm. 
This didn't mean, of course, that Byrne and his colleagues didn't engage in collegiate pranks, much like college students in the modern era. He also participated in first one and then the other college club on campus. Again, from Eisenberg, these, quote, clubs served the unique purpose of creating a proving ground for future American statesmen. A president, Madison, a vice president, Burr, several Supreme Court justices, senators, and congressmen all came from Princeton's fraternal ranks. A future Supreme Court justice and Princeton graduate, William Patterson, would take on Burr to mentor, despite there being an 11-year age gap between the two. Patterson was still highly involved on campus, despite having graduated in 1763. As Eisenberg describes, quote, Patterson shared compositions with Burr and wrote gospel letters when Burr went home, gently mocking his handwriting and giving the youth practical advice about speaking too fast. So he's got kind of this big brother mm-hmm. figure right. in his life. I can imagine that that was uh, well appreciated by Burr. Yeah. Especially given his uh, tumultuous upbringing to this point. Yeah. Though Burr graduated from Princeton in 1772, he hung around the town and the college for another year before, in the fall of 1773, traveling to Bethlehem, Connecticut, where he would study for the ministry under the Reverend Joseph Bellamy. So it's interesting, you know, he's he's kind of been following his family's footsteps. So first Princeton, now considering the ministry. Bellamy was described as, quote, a fire and brimstone preacher like Burr's grandfather, the Reverend Jonathan Edwards. Though Burr dove into his studies, after six months, he had decided that his path lay elsewhere. Thankfully, his sister Sally had married his former tutor, Tapping Reeve, who had established a law practice in Litchfield, Connecticut, so Burr moved in with them to read law with his brother-in-law. Read law with his brother-in-law. Oh, okay. <laughs> a year or so later, though, the lives of Burr, Massachusetts, and all of those living in the British North American colonies would be reshaped by the events of Lexington and Concord in April 1775, for war was coming. Burr was determined to play a role in the conflict on the side of the Patriots, and in August 1775, he and a friend traveled to Cambridge, Massachusetts, where they joined 16,000 quote-unquote untested volunteers. They would join the force under General Benedict Arnold. Oh, my. (laughs) Of course, Benedict Arnold is coming into this story. So Arnold was launching an expedition into Quebec through Maine. The expedition would not go well, because by the time they actually neared Quebec in November 1775, quote, over one-third of Arnold's men were gone. An entire battalion had turned back, due mostly to illness and food shortages, and the survivors, after a harrowing six-week march, verged on starvation. Not a good time. So you remember that Bird had some health issues early on mm-hmm. in his life, and it seems like he was seen by his family as having like a, a kind of weak constitution. Mm-hmm. So there were concerns raised by friends and family members about whether he was physically fit to endure such an arduous expedition. But as described by Eisenberg, quote, Burr's intense determination served him well as he trudged through the forbidding terrain of lakes, swamps, rivers, and dense woodlands. Asked at the end of November 1775 to carry a message to General Richard Montgomery, 
who Arnold was coordinating with in the invasion of Quebec. Burr was shortly after his arrival attached to Montgomery's staff as an aide-de-camp and raised from the rank of cadet to captain. This new posting would not last long, however, for in the assault on Quebec City in the early hours of December 31, 1775, General Montgomery was killed. Yeah. There are differing tales from folks involved in the engagement, so we can't say for certain what Burr's role was, but it does seem like he was an active participant and possibly a leading force in the conflict. He also may or may not have gone back to rescue Montgomery's body. Regardless, the battle was a disaster. As Eisenberg outlines, quote, the commander, five other officers, and 46 privates died in the assault. 34 were wounded, 372 captured. Almost all of Arnold's command were taken prisoner. Thus, Burr and around 600 others were left outside of Quebec City and, quote, were waiting for their inevitable withdrawal as they knew, as American leaders would acknowledge once news of the defeat reached them, that it was a hopeless campaign. In the meantime, the 600 remaining American troops in Quebec carried on with occasional raids, quote, designed to alarm the inhabitants. Burr and his compatriots were ultimately ordered to join together with General George Washington's forces in the defense of New York City, and they arrived in June 1776. Now, funny enough, Washington made his headquarters in a mansion in Greenwich Village called Richmond Hill. Remember that house name, Alex, because we will be coming back to it. Richmond Hill. Richmond Hill. Mm -hmm. Burr was temporarily assigned to Washington's staff before being transferred to General Israel Putnam's command to be his aide-de-camp. But Burr wanted a more active role in the war and knew that being under Putnam would allow him just that. As Eisenberg notes, quote, As Putnam's right-hand man, he, i.e. Burr, would not have to compete for attention in the way he would have as one of several aides in Washington's large military family. So it's interesting, and this gets back to, you know, Alexander Hamilton became the chief aide-de-camp for Washington, but there are many others there. So it seems like Putnam didn't have quite as many officers in his staff, and so Burr was able to have a larger role than some of the others, like James McHenry, in Washington's staff. Serving under Putnam, Burr would be involved in the evacuation of the Continental Army from Manhattan, and given his familiarity with the city, was able to share information with Putnam about the best routes to take. He was also able to intervene to save a group of American soldiers about to be surrounded by the British. Burr would continue to serve under Putnam for a year, until, on June 27, 1777, he was promoted to the rank of lieutenant colonel and assigned to Colonel William Malcolm's regiment. Despite this being an advancement in his military career, Burr wrote to General Washington of his frustration that, quote, many who were younger in the service had risen higher than he. Mm. So we start to get a sense here, Burr is ambitious. Yes. Still, he would take up this new commission and join Malcolm's regiment at Smith's Clove in the Rampal Mountains in New York. This posting put him close to Bergen County, New Jersey, which was the home of a young woman named Theodosia Prevo. Now, Theodosia at the time was married to British Lieutenant Colonel James Marcus Prevo, who would participate in military campaigns carried out by the British in the southern U.S. and the West Indies. Despite her husband's allegiance, Theodosia, quote, was a closet patriot 
who forged strong alliances with George Washington himself, as well as other prominent officials in revolutionary New Jersey. While the exact date of their meeting is not known, it is speculated that Colonel Burr might have first made Theodosie's acquaintance at her home, the Hermitage, in September 1777, which was used as a meeting place and lodging for patriots, as well as, in July 1778, as General Washington's headquarters. So, where was this Hermitage located? In New York somewhere? New Jersey. Oh, New Jersey, okay. New Jersey. So Not to be confused with the one in Tennessee. Exactly. This is not Andrew Jackson's. This is another one. So, why do I mention this young lady, you ask? Theodosia, Theodosia. Let down your hair. Yeah, it's a very unusual name. Was that a common name of the day? Of the day? Not really. This this is the only Theodosia that I can think of, at least offhand. So, pretty unique name. I can hear him saying it. It's almost, and I can't remember the uh, Winchester sister's name on MASH, but Theodosia. Oh, her name was, um... Anyway. <laughs> Honoria. Honoria. Theodosia. Honoria. Theodosia. From the same school. Yes. So, Theodosia, and, you know, for somebody with such a distinctive name, she also had a distinctive personality. She was known for being a lively, engaging, and attentive host who, quote, cultivated the smart, conversational style that distinguished the French salon. And she was noted as displaying an impromptu wit. She managed to get along with British officers as well as American. And Eisenberg describes how, quote, her home was a kind of war-free zone and sanctuary. Interesting. Almost like a Dolly Madison of the day, huh? Almost like a Dolly Madison of the day. Malcolm's regiment would later that year be joined with the main army in Pennsylvania. And thus, Burr was with Washington's force during the infamous winter at Valley Forge. Burr found himself disappointed with his role in the army at this point because, as described by Eisenberg, he was finding that the war had less to do with grand battles than with finding a system, his word, for solving day-to-day problems, low morale, mutiny, petty crime, and plundering. Further, his new commander, Colonel Malcolm, quote, spent so little time in camp that he left most of the responsibility for discipline in Burr's hands which resulted in Burr getting what seems like an undeserved reputation in future accounts of his life of being excessively strict with disciplining soldiers in the regiment. As Eisenberg notes, quote, Burr was generally in a forgiving mood when he handled disciplinary cases. Burr would fight in the Battle of Monmouth on June 28, 1778, but unfortunately suffered from heat stroke in the midst of the battle. The aftermath of this battle left Burr feeling disheartened. The treatment of General Charles Lee and the efforts of folks like Alexander Hamilton and John Lawrence in Washington's military family to conspire to bring Lee down in order to secure Washington's position as head of the Continental Army turned him off from continuing to serve. Now, this isn't to say that Charles Lee didn't have it coming, for he was an active rival to Washington. But to Burr, it was quote-unquote party business and he proclaimed Hamilton and Lawrence to be, quote-unquote, dirty earwigs. Mm. He even went so far as to write a letter of support for Lee. So this is interesting, you know, this, that's one of the things that I think is being increasingly more talked about. Washington wasn't always the guy, you know. 
there were times that his supremacy in the Continental Army and his leadership were challenged. And this is one of those. Mm -hmm. Charles Lee was threatening his leadership. And as Hamilton would do at later times, he came to Washington's defense. And Burr saw this going on and was like, this isn't right. You know, you're you're tearing this guy down just to build this other guy up. Mm. After Monmouth, Burr did some reconnaissance work for General Washington, and then, in August 1778, escorted three prominent loyalists to British-held New York City, accompanied by Theodosia Prevo and her sister Catherine. So, Theodosia's in the picture. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yes, Theodosia. For a bit, Colonel Burr received permission from General Washington to take a leave of absence in order to recover his health after suffering from headaches that had started after his bout of heat stroke from the Battle of Mama. He decided to rest in the fall of 1778 at, can you guess where he stayed? Richmond Hill. Close, but the home of Theodosia Prevo, uh, the Hermitage. Oh, uh, okay. Richmond Hill isn't back in the picture just, just yet. yet. Well, that probably wouldn't make any sense anyway, but okay, go ahead. Burr was not alone in his affections for Theodosia, as James Monroe and Robert Troop were other notable, quote-unquote, male patrons that Prevo had in the Continental Army, all three being in their early 20s at the time. But at this time, you know, their affections were more in the model of courtly love, and Burr wrote of her as, quote, Sister P, so P for Prevo. Mm-hmm. For Burr, if not for his fellow young officers, this affection would ultimately become something more, but we'll come back to that. After his leave was done, Burr took a new assignment at West Point where he was, quote, saddled with new duties, presiding over a series of courts martial concerning forged passes, breaches of discipline, and insolent and riotous behavior. In January 1779, he was transferred to the command of General Alexander McDougall in Westchester County, New York, which Eisenberg described as, quote, one of the worst areas for civilians, a no-man's land between the two major armies. Even worse, the men under his command engaged in plundering civilian properties in the area. Burr was appalled by their behavior. He put into place a system to cut down on the Continental Army's bad behavior in the area and helped stabilize the region. However, as Eisenberg notes, implementing it, quote, was physically taxing and emotionally draining. Thus, on February 18, 1779, Burr wrote to General McDougall explaining the details of his system and asserting that it could be continued without him. Then, on March 25th, he sent in his official letter to General Washington resigning his commission, citing poor health as his reason for leaving the service. So, he is now out of the war. And he did it on my birthday. And he did it on your birthday. Woo! What year was that? Uh, 1779. Wow, okay. Yeah. I'll tell you how many years before. <laughs> that was, but it, it was a hot minute. Couple hundred. Yeah. In the early fall of 1779, Lieutenant Colonel James Marcus Prevo was appointed as governor of British-controlled Georgia. And he asked for his wife, Theodosia, to join him. She, however, ignored the request, mm. despite one of her sisters urging her to travel with him, quote, wherever he may settle for a time, and asking her, quote, what can be your motive 
for not complying with his request. Well, maybe some young 20-year-old army officers, perhaps? Perhaps. Or we maybe need to call her Teasy McTeaser? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's that's Jefferson. Okay. Uh, Sorry. That's Jefferson. Uh, that was the other guy. I've got a nickname coming up in a little bit. <laughs> but still, despite this pressure, Theodosia refused. And in her absence, sent along a lock of her hair. Oh, good grief. I'm sure that kept him warm at night. (laughs) Meanwhile, existing primary sources from 1780 indicate, as noted by Eisenberg, quote, that Theodosia and Burr were by now openly lovers. Okay. Lock of hair and all. Lock of hair and all. Oh, he's getting more than a lock of hair. (laughs) (laughs) He's getting the whole shebang. (laughs) Wow. That's kind of a... Okay, anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Eisenberg speculates that certain remarks by mutual friends indicate that there may have been encouragement for Theodosia to consider divorce and that, quote, given her political influence, Theodosia may have been able to bring a divorce petition to the attention of the state legislature. So Mm -hmm. she knows all these prominent folks. She can probably get a divorce And especially considering that he's a British officer Mm -hmm. and she's loyal to the Patriots. Right. But you also have to wonder, at a time where divorce was very uncommon, if not not known, that may have been a tall order as well. But regardless, Lieutenant Colonel Prevo would end up being stationed to Jamaica, which is where he would pass away from yellow fever in 1781. Mm, That's a... Interesting, convenient twist of fate. I know, right? Yeah. Could she have hired somebody to give him yellow fever? Who knows? Theodosia would learn of his death in December of that year, and in that month, due to her being in mourning and them having to remain separate for a time, Burr kept a journal of his feelings in anticipation for the day when they could be, quote, formally united. As noted by Eisenberg, quote, Burr distinctly pursued a marriage based on a very modern idea of friendship between the sexes. Unfortunately, it would be some time before they could be together, as they both suffered from physical ailments around the same time. Meanwhile, 1781 found Aaron Burr returning to his study of the law. He went through three apprenticeships, finally studying under Thomas Smith of Haverstraw, New York, under whom Eisenberg asserts that, quote, Burr returned to his intensive habits of study, devoting an incredible 16 hours a day to reading and compiling notes. That's kind of like what he was in, you know, in college, Mm -hmm. 16 hours a day. That's, man, voracious. Yeah. Yeah. Theodosia, meanwhile, left New Jersey in order to prevent state commissioners from, quote, confiscating her husband's property and stayed in Sharon, Connecticut, near Burr's sister. Both, however, would find themselves to be the subjects of gossip. During this time of difficulty, they would write letters to one another, talking about books that they were reading, with Theodosia expressing a particular interest in the works of Jean-Jacques Rousseau, especially his book, Emile. In April 1782, Burr was admitted to the bar and opened his law practice in Albany. With matters settled enough for them to proceed with their relationship, on July 2nd, 1782, Aaron Burr and Theodosia Prevo were wet. All right. So here we go. long last. Less than a year later, on June 21st, 1783, their first child, a daughter who, at Burr's insistence, was also named Theodosia, was born. So would that be 
Theodosia Jr. Or <laughs> how, how does that work when you name the daughter after the mother? I mean, I know when, with men it's junior or first, second, but that's that's okay. Uh-huh. <laughs> Makes it interesting. Yeah, so, so Theo Jr. is now born. Nearly two years later, to the day, a second daughter named Sally was born. Sadly, Sally would pass away at the age of three, and two more pregnancies would not go full term. Mm. As noted by Eisenberg, Theodosia, due to, quote, enduring periods of excruciating pain during their marriage, mm. she increasingly relied on laudanum to ease her suffering. So, mm-hmm. of course, that's an opium-based right, drug. Right. In addition to their daughter, Theodosia, Burr also provided for his stepsons, Frederick and Bartow Prevo. So that's her sons from her previous marriage. Mm-hmm. Despite her ill health, the elder Theodosia was primarily responsible for their daughter's education in her early life. And as noted by Eisenberg, quote, the Burrs introduced their daughter to a rigorous curriculum early in life. She could read and write by the age of three. Wow. She studied mathematics, geography, Latin, Greek, French, and excelled at a pace that was well beyond her years. The young Theodosia also, quote, began writing letters to her father by the age of five, which grew into a regular dialogue. He told her to keep a journal, which she sent to him every week. Again from Eisenberg, quote, Burr was unique in treating his daughter as an apprentice. He conceived of her enlightenment as a professional calling, more or less. Wow. So it's interesting, again, one of the reasons I'd mentioned, you know, thinking about his mother you see this different relationship with his wife and the fact that he is actively involved in his daughter getting what at the time would have been a male education. Okay. Go, Aaron, go. So, got to say, I'm pretty impressed with the way, the way you are, uh, you know, embracing equality. Exactly. Exactly. So good job. Good job. Yeah. Still got the nickname waiting, though. <laughs> You're ready with I'm the nickname. ready with the nickname. So, along with the birth of their first child, 1783 saw Aaron and Theodosia Burr move to a new home on Wall Street near City Hall in New York City, and Burr opened up a new law practice there. The next year, Burr moved his growing family to a new home on Little Queen Street, where they would stay until 1790 when he moved them to number 4 Broadway. Burr commuted back and forth between New York City and Albany as his law practice continued to grow. The timing of Burr setting up his practice in New York City was fortuitous, as the state had passed a law barring loyalist lawyers from practicing law in New York. Mm. So thus, in the post-revolutionary era, Burr found himself with little competition and plenty of work. Because, you know, New York City had been occupied for so long and so many had, you know, acceded to the loyalist cause in the government. So he really didn't have that much competition. He was able to set himself up well. Two years after Burr moved his family to the city, New York City doubled in population with, quote, former residents as well as ambitious newcomers returning to the city now that it was no longer occupied by the British. With a barrage of anti-Tory legislation coming down from Albany, Burr and other lawyers found plenty of work in settling suits stemming from the legislation. During the latter half of the 1780s, most of the cases Burr participated in were tried in the mayor's court, which, quote, was primarily a debtor's court. This gave him occasion to make the acquaintance of another up-and-coming lawyer, 
Alexander Hamilton. Aha, here we go. So he had kind of known Hamilton from afar and had criticized him during the war, but now they're going to get to see each other on a regular basis. Oh, the plot thickens. The plot thickens. Now, as Burr typically represented Patriot clients, Hamilton often represented loyalists. And so they often found themselves in opposition in court. Imagine that. I know, right? (laughs) That's not going to lead to something. Likewise, politically speaking, Hamilton opposed the anti-Tory legislation, while Burr saw it, quote, as a necessary but temporary remedy to help New York recover from the British occupation. Burr also practiced before the state Supreme Court, which involved travel to Albany from time to time. Burr's style as a lawyer was described as follows, quote, Burr spoke with great precision before the court and would judiciously employ a pointed remark to dismiss opposing counsel's ponderous arguments. One later colleague at the bar claimed that Burr's legal style was persuasive and imaginative rather than strictly argumentative. Now, we should note that in his civic participation, private life, and legal practice, Burr dealt with matters related to slavery. Mm. Though he expressed publicly his support for, quote, the immediate emancipation of all slaves in New York, Burr himself was a slave owner, Mm -hmm. and he also was not opposed to taking on cases, quote, that treated slaves as property rather than people. Mm. Eisenberg notes that this wasn't necessarily unusual at the time as, quote, many prominent members of the New York Manumission Society owned slaves. However, it is something that we'll need to consider we get to our evaluation at the end. Oh, we will. Yeah. While working to advance his legal career as well as his social standing, Aaron Burr at this time started to get involved, as so many of his contemporaries did, in land speculation. Again from Eisenberg, quote, Burr's opportunities to speculate arose from three predictable sources, family, military friends, and clients. As others would find, these investments wouldn't always pay off, and we'll come back to Burr's financial difficulties as we go along. Burr would also begin his rise in politics when he was elected to the New York State Assembly in May 1784, riding on the coattails of his former military commander, Alexander McDougall, who was quickly becoming a political leader in his role in the state Senate. However, he may not have considered this too important of a post initially, as he didn't arrive until three weeks after the state legislature convened in October. Quote, And even then, he failed to propose a single bill, engage in debates, or make any impression whatsoever. Okay. So, he's going for the the slow start. Just going to sit here and listen. I'm going to kind of grace people with my presence. Yeah. Once I finally get there, of course. Once I get there, yes. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah, I'm definitely feeling the nickname coming pretty soon. (laughs) Yeah. Y'all are going to love it. (laughs) In his second session... Burr got more involved, including becoming a, quote, chairman of a joint committee to revise the laws of the state. In the course of this debate, Burr pushed for the immediate abolition of all those enslaved in the state and for ensuring rights for free blacks. Except for his slave. Yeah. But I'm guessing, you know, I didn't read anything that he put in any special conditions or, you know, small, fine print. So... Maybe he was including his Mm -hmm. own in that. Yeah, yeah. A likely story. Burr started to get involved in New York politics at 
a time that the state's government was dominated by three factions, one led by Governor George Clinton, who had served in that post since 1777, and I think you already know this, Alex, Mm -hmm. he will be the next vice president that we cover in this series. And I've already got a nickname for him, too. (laughs) You're ready with the nicknames. Yep, I'm going to have one for all of the VPs. (laughs) The second faction was headed by Chancellor Robert R. Livingston, and the third was nominally headed by Philip Schuyler, who would go on to be a U.S. senator, but the de facto head of this faction was Schuyler's son-in-law, Alexander Hamilton. Oh, there we go again. Yep, we're back to Hamilton. Mm-hmm. Burr would only serve a year in the state assembly and would decline nomination to the assembly as well as the state convention to ratify the U.S. Constitution in 1788. It may have been for the best, at least in the latter case, because, quote, in New York City, not a single anti-federalist came close to winning a seat at the convention, and Burr was in the anti-federalist camp, so mm-hmm. he was against the Constitution. Eisenberg notes that Burr was an opponent to the Constitution, but that he followed the lead of, quote, Judge Robert Yates, an anti-federalist leader who wholeheartedly supported the new government once the Constitution became the law of the land. So as they were debating it, he was like, I don't really think it's a good idea. Okay, we're doing this anyway. Well, I guess I'll go along. Mm-hmm. Despite this, as we'll talk more about in his episode, Governor Clinton was looking to broaden his base of support and he actually attempted to bring Burr into his faction, offering him the position of New York State Attorney General in September 1789, which was a job that Burr accepted. As described by Eisenberg, quote, It was a thankless job that paid relatively little, 400 pounds per year, but it was a position that gave Burr wider visibility. Recognition came at a price. The Attorney Generalship demanded endless hours in court, time sitting on commissions, and more than enough paperwork. The two years that he would spend as New York Attorney General gave Burr, quote, an exceptional opportunity to present himself as a legal reformer as he prepared a report in 1791 titled Observations, which Governor Clinton, after reviewing, presented to the state legislature for action. Burr based this work on the ideas of Enlightenment thinker Cesare Beccaria that, quote, a punishment had to be proportional to the actual harm caused by the crime and thus recommending reform to New York's criminal code. The legislature would ultimately not act on Burr's recommendations, but it did at least start the conversation that would ultimately lead to future reforms. So guess that, you know, have the punishment meet Mm -hmm. the crime. Mm -hmm. As discussed in his Seat at the Table episode, Burr's Princeton classmate, William Bradford, who would become in a few years' time the second U.S. Attorney General, also proposed criminal code reforms in Pennsylvania a couple of years later. For his work over two years as Attorney General, Governor Clinton decided to push Burr's candidacy for a higher office, that of U.S. Senator. This campaign, however, would pit Burr against the nominal leader of one of the other major factions, incumbent U.S. Senator Philip Schuyler, who naturally would be supported by his son-in-law, Hamilton who at this point was the Secretary of the Treasury. Thus, Clinton and Burr worked behind the scenes to convince members of the state legislature to support Burr over Schuyler. It helped that, by this time, Hamilton had alienated the Livingston faction, who then turned their support to Clinton. Ultimately, Burr won by a vote of 32-27 to 27 in the lower house and 14-4 to 4 in the state senate. 
Though Burr did not intend it as such, this political outmaneuvering would set up an opposition between him and Hamilton that would end in tragedy. Mm-hmm. But we'll get to that. I was going to say. <laughs> yes. But Didn't give away the farm too, too early in, but yeah, it's coming. But Hamilton was none too pleased at this and really starts to see Burr as a major threat in his wanting to control New York politics and also national politics, because now Burr is on the national scale. In other words, he was a, are you ready for it? Burr in the saddle. <laughs> there we go. There it is. Name, the Burr in the saddle. There it is. Yeah. The Burr in the saddle. Yes. So this Burr left office as New York Attorney General on September 8th, 1791, and assumed his seat in the Senate that year. Now, he would prove to be much more active in this role than he was in the State Assembly, quote, serving on roughly 60 committees between 1791 and 1797, many of which dealt with military issues, public lands on the frontier, and veterans' pensions. He would also use his position in the Senate to speak out in favor of the Democratic-Republican clubs that sprung up during his tenure in the upper house of Congress, and that ultimately President Washington himself would denounce. So it's interesting, again, you see Burr kind of setting himself up in the opposition. Mm -hmm. You know, George Washington at this point is the established, he's the president, he's the established figure, primary figure in the United States, and Burr is setting himself up against Washington. Burr in the saddle. Burr in the saddle. Funny enough, some New Yorkers the following year wanted to bring Burr back to the Empire State to run for governor. And those putting his name forward were, in fact, Federalists, including Judge Robert Yates, the Federalist candidate in the previous gubernatorial election. Mm. Secretary Hamilton and former Senator Schuyler, as soon as they learned, started reaching out to their friends and supporters to quell the calls for Burr to run as the Federalist candidate. They were like, are you kidding me? This guy. This guy? He's cray. This is the guy that you want? Really? There's nobody else? This guy? Okay. <laughs> Hamilton convinced Supreme Court Chief Justice John Jay to throw his hat into the race, and ultimately even Yates was convinced to withdraw his support from Burr. Burr ultimately withdrew his name and did not take an active part in either Governor Clinton's re-election campaign or Jay's bid for the post. Senator Burr would find himself brought into the middle of things, however, when voting irregularities showed up in three counties. And election canvassers turned to him and his Federalist colleague in the Senate, Rufus King, for guidance from a legal standpoint about how to proceed. So at this point, you know, there are, of course, two U.S. senators, one Burr, Democratic Republican, King, Federalist. Mm -hmm. King and Burr talked the matter over for two days, but ultimately could not reach a consensus. King pushed for all the votes to be counted while Burr felt that there were legal reasons for ruling the votes invalid. When King insisted on publishing his opinion, Burr followed suit. So they were not able to agree, even though they had been asked, okay, give your opinion, can you come up with something? They weren't able to, they just went towards their faction. Okay. Mm. Ultimately, the votes from the three counties were thrown out, and George Clinton was elected to another term as governor, by a margin of only 108 votes. Good night. That's not much. 
And we will talk about this more in his episode. This does impact his time as governor, as you can imagine. Yeah. You know, the, the fact that he only won the election by a slim margin, and it was only by throwing the votes out from three counties. It didn't bode well for him. I'm sure. I'm sure it sounded like sour grapes, to say the least. Yeah. Yeah. And meanwhile, and, and this was, and again, this was a time of complete factional polarization, and we see it. There are all these attacks flying back and forth, and Federalists vilified Burr for what one called the, quote, shameful prostitution of his legal talents. Okay. Wow. <laughs> Ooh. Yes, we're talking about prostitution now. But Eisenberg asserted that she believed from her research that Burr had ideological reasons for believing that the vote was invalid and that it wasn't simply politically motivated. As she writes, quote, he, i.e. Burr, did not automatically take one side over another. He did not jump thoughtlessly to every Republican viewpoint, nor immediately discard every Federalist one. And this is something to keep in mind, and we've already kind of seen, you know, we've seen that Federalists were even talking about him as a candidate for governor. This is a time, even though things are factional, mm -hmm. it's not as black and white as you're only over here, everybody else is over here. It really is, there's this middle ground, and Burr tries to walk that middle line and, mm -hmm. and not necessarily say, well, if my party or if my faction says something, it must be true. But in this case, he agreed with them. Okay. Burr decided that he needed to publicly defend his reputation. I mean, after being accused of prostitution, he might feel a need. Uh, a little bit, a little bit. And thus, in addition to getting endorsements from U.S. Attorney General Edmund Randolph, former Pennsylvania Attorney General Jonathan Dickinson Sargent, and others. In November 1792, he published a 46-page pamphlet entitled An Impartial Statement of the Controversy Respecting the Decision of the Late Committee of Canvassers. Burr had tried to get his Federalist friends to endorse his legal stance on the matter as well, but they declined to do so. And Federalists even printed some of the negative opinions from his friends that he had solicited in a rebuttal pamphlet, which was published eight days after Burr's impartial statement. Naturally, his friendship with those Federalists suffered in the process. Mm -hmm. So he's like, you know, this you are just being partisan here. I'm trying to say I had true reasons for this, and you know me. Would you just come out and say, I know this guy to be good? No. Despite the controversy, as 1792 was a presidential election year, Dr. Benjamin Rush of Philadelphia started up a campaign for Aaron Burr to be the anti-administration's candidate for vice president to replace the incumbent, John Adams. Dr. Benjamin Rush? Dr. Benjamin Rush. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. So you know Benjamin Rush? Yeah. Yeah, and, and Benjamin Rush, so he was a prominent leader in the revolution, and of course, listeners of the podcast know him from the yellow fever epidemic. Yeah. And we will have a seat at the table episode on his son, Richard Rush, who ends up becoming attorney general and secretary of the treasury. Interesting. All right. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah. Hey, it's all starting to kind of piece together now. Yeah. So Dr. Rush and, 
and Rush, um, and this was another thing, I think I think we may have mentioned this in Adams's episode. So well no, we didn't go into really the details of his post presidency. Um so Benjamin Rush was actually the one who prompted John Adams to start writing to Jefferson again. And when they reignited there, it it was because of Benjamin Rush's efforts. Like he was friends with both of them and and he kept telling both of them, and he's like, why don't y'all, you know, you're out of politics, you're retired, why don't you be friends again? Benjamin Rush helped to bring them back together. Well, I, I knew Benjamin Rush, not to, you know, go on a, on a, a detour here, uh, as the father of American psychiatry, because he was a physician, of course. And so, interesting. Very, yeah. So, he was involved in politics at the time and was part of the anti-administration folks and he said burr should be our god he wants some burr in the saddle too get that burr in the saddle okay now burr's name was not the only name floating around because new york governor george clinton who had been the favorite of the anti-federalists in the first election was back in the mix and again we'll talk about this more in his episode but this meant that burr had to be very careful about his approach to the situation to avoid alienating clinton so even though they hadn't been aligned politically initially, they, you know, this alliance was holding and Burr was like, I don't want to do anything to mess this up. For his part, Clinton worked to get Burr appointed as an associate justice to the New York State Supreme Court in early October to knock him out of the running, but Burr declined the appointment. Mm-hmm. He's like, I'm a U.S. Senator. Why would I want that? Right. Burr's candidacy ultimately suffered for the fact that Clinton, rather than he, was the favorite candidate of the anti-administration Virginians, including their leader at the time, Representative James Madison, as well as Senator James Monroe. Mm. Now, as you can imagine, Secretary Hamilton also did his part in working against Burr's candidacy. Of course. Of course he did. He claimed in a letter in late September 1792 that he felt it, quote, a religious duty to oppose Burr's career. So he's he's getting Christian fundamentalist up in it. <laughs> he's, it's getting biblical up in here. Biblical up in here, okay. <laughs> and we're talking Old Testament. Ooh, all right. <laughs> There's some. He wants to smite. <laughs> look out, Leviticus! Look out. Ultimately, Clinton lost the contest with Adams being reelected. We talked about that, right? But as Eisenberg points out, Pennsylvania was a critical state and one that favored Burr over Clinton. And had its electoral votes swung, Adams would have been defeated. So we didn't really get this in Adams' episode, but there was an opportunity here. If Burr had been the candidate that the anti-administration folks rallied around, possibly could have swung Pennsylvania and possibly could have ended up with him as the second vice president. And it's interesting that Alexander Hamilton and Adams didn't get along. I wonder what Hamilton would have thought of Burr being the second VP. Ooh. I wonder how that would have changed things. That's more than a burr in the saddle. That's more than a burr in the saddle. But, of course, it didn't happen. Burr stayed in the Senate. Adams stayed as the presiding officer of the Senate. And in the year after the election, in addition to his duties in the Senate, Burr also served as the attorney for Hamilton's mistress, Maria Reynolds, in her divorce proceedings. Burr later served as the ward for Mrs. Reynolds' daughter, 
who he made arrangements to stay with Representative and later Secretary of War William Eustis in Boston. So Eustis had his episode in the Sea at the Table series, and there's this Hamilton connection. Okay. Remember when we talked about Richmond Hill? Yes. Burr bought it. Oh, wow. It became his estate, and this estate was described as, quote, a sprawling property of 160 acres, boasting English-style gardens, meadows extending to the Hudson River, and a man-made pond graced the gateway to the grounds. Richmond Hill Mansion was a two-story house with neoclassical features, a portico and ionic columns, and Chinese Chippendale porch railings. Sounds quaint. As you can imagine, because this is in what is now Greenwich Village in Manhattan, it's no longer there. But this is a stylish, spacious estate. This is a grand estate. This really indicates just how much he's moving up. I I can't help but think of the Jeffersons. Moving on up. (laughs) Moving on up. As noted by Eisenberg, quote, Burr personally supervised the transformation of his home into a political statement that reflected his rise in New York and the young nation. For several years, he lived in grand style at the center of New York society. His home became, quote, a cosmopolitan entrepôt, a way station for foreign travelers, literati, French exiles, friends, and family. So, it, and again, you know, you were talking about Dolly Madison earlier. This really sounds like Dolly's table. Everybody comes together mm-hmm. at Richmond Hill. While settling into his new home, Senator Burr didn't adjust quite as well to the social life of Philadelphia when the nation's capital moved to that city. And during a brief visit joining him there, his wife Theodosia described the city as, quote-unquote, uninhabitable. Ooh. No love lost there. None at all. <laughs> Rather than the lavish parties that the upper echelons of Philadelphia society enjoyed, Burr preferred, quote, more informal salon-like gatherings with his close friends where he can engage in wide-ranging conversations. So it's interesting, you know, you, you think about this is something that he kind of has in common with Jefferson. Jefferson preferred more, you know, having a small group together to be able to talk. So, interesting. He worked to cultivate friendships with Senator Monroe and Representative Madison while they were all in the nation's capital. You know, they had been opposed to him for the VP slot. So, he's trying to build those connections. Right, win back their favor. Exactly. And indeed, it would be Aaron Burr who, in the spring of 1794, introduced the widowed Dolly Todd to Representative Madison. Okay. Well, well, well. Here we go. Full Mm -hmm. circle. And the favors didn't stop there. For Senator Monroe, Burr represented him and his wife Elizabeth in a lawsuit concerning the estate of Elizabeth's late father. So Elizabeth Courtright Monroe, she was originally from New York, so her father's estate was there, so he helped them out as well. Mm -hmm. So starting to make some good connections. Senator Burr also rose in the defense of his colleague, Senator Albert Gallatin, Democratic-Republican of Pennsylvania, when shortly after taking his oath of office in early December 1793, Gallatin was attacked by Federalists looking to maintain their majority in the Senate for not meeting the naturalization clause in the U.S. Constitution that a U.S. senator had to be a citizen for nine years before serving in that office. And Mm. 
We talked about this in Gallatin's Seat at the Table episode. Gallatin kind of knew that this was how this was going to be. When folks start putting forward his name as senator, he is like, well, that's kind of an issue. I just got here. You know, it hasn't been nine years. Maybe you need to find somebody else. No, no, it's going to be fine. Well, it wasn't. Mm. And as predicted, his opponents took up the goal. They wanted to get him out. In mid-February 1794, proceedings began in the Senate to rule on Gallatin's eligibility to hold a seat. These proceedings proved to be the first time that the public was invited into the Senate chamber during the legislative body's deliberations. In his defense against Federalist arguments, Burr drew on the work of Jean-Jacques Rousseau to argue, quote, that citizenship came from consent. Citizens were not born, but made, through their participation in civil society. By that argument, since his arrival in 1780, Gallatin had been involved in civic life. And so he was saying, even though it hadn't been made formal until a little later, Gallatin had been involved in civic life since 1780 and thus was a citizen. Mm -hmm. Despite Burr's efforts, in a party-line vote of 14 to 12, Gallatin's election was ruled invalid and thus he was, without ceremony, removed from office in the Senate. Turnabout was fair play. And a month later, Senator Monroe objected to the appointment of Kenzie Johns, a Federalist, to a Senate seat from Delaware. And by a one-vote margin, Johns was removed. Goodness. So, very partisan, very factional, just increasingly so. Mm, Sounds kind of familiar. I know. We know nothing about that. We know nothing about that at all. After Gallatin's removal from the Senate, he and Burr would remain friends, and Gallatin would return to Philadelphia as a representative in the House. As described by Eisenberg, Gallatin's, quote, relationship with Burr in the 1790s tells us much about the coalescence of the Northern Republican element. Both Burr and Gallatin favored an independent economy, i.e. free from foreign, especially British, dependence, supporting commercial growth and Western expansion. Influenced by the Enlightenment, They fashion themselves as rational Republicans, social liberals, independent thinkers. They saw politics as a thinking person's game, in which rational planning was essential to partisan victory. I'm Allison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Burr also used his time in the nation's capital to acquaint himself with foreign policy matters, receiving permission from Secretary of State Thomas Jefferson in 1793, quote, to review the correspondence of America's ministers abroad. With this knowledge, Senator Burr was able to launch an attack against U.S. Minister to France, Gouverneur Morris, who was being roundly criticized by the French revolutionary government of the time. So Gouverneur Morris was a Federalist. He was very pro-British. And of course, that's the perfect person to send to France. Yeah. Burr established himself firmly on the side of the French in April 1794 when he drafted a resolution to be introduced in the Senate, quote, congratulating the French Republic on its recent military victories over England. Mm-hmm. 
So that was a problem. Right. Because at this time, Britain and France were, of course, at war. This war would last for over a decade, well over a decade. And Washington was trying to keep neutrality. He was like, we don't need to get involved in this. And Burr and other, what would come to be the Democratic Republicans, were pushing for, let's support France. They're actually our ally. We signed a treaty of alliance with them. And you've got Hamilton and the Federalists saying, why? They've got this revolution going on that is going out of control. We really don't deal with them much anyway. Most of our trades with Britain, why wouldn't we support Britain? And meanwhile, you've got Washington saying, have you seen the size of our army? We really don't have much of an army at all. And we certainly don't have a navy. Mm. So maybe we don't need to go to, to war with anybody right now. Yeah. Burr would also join forces with Monroe and Senator John Taylor of Caroline, Democratic Republican from Virginia, in opposing Chief Justice John Jay's nomination as a special envoy to Britain to discuss recent tensions in Anglo-American relations. They rooted their arguments in opposition to Jay's nomination in the Chief Justice's pro-British outlook. So Jay, of course, was a Federalist. He was pro-British. Burr, however, also brought up the fact that as the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, it seemed unconstitutional for him to also be in the employ of the President of the United States as a diplomatic envoy. So he was saying separation of powers. You know, this is the head of the judicial branch taking a post, serving under the chief executive. That seems not right. Conflict of interest. Exactly. But these objections would go nowhere. Jay's nomination was confirmed, and he left for Britain in May. Mm -hmm. Between his connections in the nation's capital and his growing interest in foreign affairs, Burr was put forward to President Washington as a possible replacement for Morris in the Paris mission. Now, that posting ultimately went to his friend Monroe, but by that point, Burr had more personal matters on his mind rather than losing a diplomatic commission. So we had mentioned earlier Theodosia's health issues. Mm-hmm. Her health had been on a progressive decline for the past two years. Mm-hmm. But Burr got word in the spring of 1794 that the situation was becoming critical, and he rushed back to New York to be by her side. Before he could reach her, on May 18, 1794, at the age of 47, Theodosia Barto Prevo Burr passed away at their home. That's got to be rough. As Eisenberg describes, Burr, quote, had not only lost his wife, he had lost his best ally in the political wars to come. So this is one thing, you know, we've seen other political partnerships with spouses, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. John and Abigail Adams, right. James and Dolly Madison. But this was a strong relationship between the two. And now she's gone. And at a time that factionalism and politics is heating up, it's becoming even worse. And Burr is right in the middle of it. No wonder he becomes a right. Well, you know what? <laughs> <laughs> wow. Wow. That's got to be rough. Yeah. So, despite this, he keeps going. Though he lost out on the diplomatic post, he offered up the services of his stepson, John Bartow Prevo, 
to act as Monroe's personal secretary, and the young man would travel with the Virginian diplomat across the Atlantic. Between his stepson and Monroe, Burr would be kept well informed of matters in France and Europe in general, and the senator would likewise keep the U.S. minister to France updated on what was happening back in Philadelphia and the U.S. So they're forming this good political partnership. Mm -hmm. In Monroe's absence, Burr grew in prominence as a Democratic-Republican leader in the Senate. This would become important in June 1795 when the special session of the Senate began, as called by President Washington, to consider the treaty that John Jay had negotiated with the British. So he had been sent on this diplomatic mission, came back, hey, I've got this treaty, it's great. Well, not great, but it's it's the best. It's something, (laughs) it keeps us out of war. It's the best I could get. Democratic Republicans looked at this and they were like, what did you do? As described by Eisenberg, quote, Jay's treaty seemed to them, the Democratic Republicans, like a complete capitulation. Mm-hmm. So it really didn't get us much of anything except we're staying out of war. Right. And we need it to stay out of war. Burr worked to lure some of the reticent Federalists to their cause of opposing Jay's treaty and even sent a request for an audience with Washington to discuss the matter. So even Federalists are looking at this and they're like, eh, we're kind of... We don't really like this treaty. Washington had times that he was like, uh, don't really know. He was kind of on the fence. Burr was trying to, uh, well, I hear that. Let's talk. Let's see what we can do. We really don't like this treaty. Washington did not reply to Burr's request, and it increasingly became apparent that those in the Federalist camp, while not happy about the treaty, were also not ready to cross the aisle. They were going to hold their nose and vote for the treaty. Again, doesn't sound familiar at all. Not at all. So Burr did make a final appeal in a speech on the Senate floor, but ultimately Jay's treaty was approved by a 20-10 vote. Still, his role in fighting against the treaty earned him accolades from Democratic Republicans in various parts of the nation, including his native New York. So even though he lost the battle, it still did his reputation some good. His new leadership role also meant that he was attacked in two satirical works that year, including one that, quote, depicted Burr as an intriguer. The attacks were highly personal, criticizing his private life, his manners, and his physical appearance. Mm. They also portrayed him as, quote, an aristocrat slumming with Democrats, using the people to promote his private ambition. Okay, it's getting a little bit Interesting. So for those who have read ahead and kind of know Burr's reputation, this is kind of where that starts. And it's from Federalist attacks. And as we're going to see as we go along, this becomes the history, even though I think, especially as we get to the end, I think we've got some discussion about whether or not this is true. Mm -hmm. Now, New York Federalists began to worry that Burr was scheming to run for governor which it does seem that he was, in fact, interested in the office. Unfortunately for him, Chancellor Robert Livingston and the Chief Justice of the State Supreme Court, we mentioned him earlier, Robert Yates, decided to throw their hats into the race. Both, however, would be defeated by the candidacy of Chief Justice John Jay, who arrived back in the U.S. from his diplomatic mission to discover that he had been elected governor of New York. Okay. 
As noted by Eisenberg, quote, parties, in fact, had little impact on the 1795 governor's race. The candidates presented themselves as moderates, independent of national alliances. To put it best, they straddled parties. So burr in the saddle. Burr in the saddle <laughs> once again. Saddle and straddle. <laughs> yeah. Now, while that seemed like a formula for success for Burr, the crowded field of larger name public figures ultimately left him with no path of victory, despite the efforts of his friends. By late March, he was out of the running. Mm. Still, he did use his brief campaign to get his name out there, even going so far as to rent a house in Albany in order to appeal to voters outside of New York City. Okay. He also did something unthinkable in late 18th century politics. You ready? I'm ready. Burr, quote, openly engaged in campaigning. Well. He went out and campaigned for himself. Hey, so in some ways, this dude was a trailblazer. I mean, you know, he's he's all about equality for women, or at least those women that are closest to him, and getting into the campaign for better or worse. So, hey, interesting. Yeah. So, let's keep that in mind as we go along. But while doing legal business in various court districts across the state, Burr actively tried to solicit support for his gubernatorial campaign. Eisenberg makes the point that this really fits with his personality because, quote, he preferred to undertake tasks rather than to delegate them. So he was very much, he wants to get in the fray. He wants to get into the mix. With his own campaign at an end, in the late summer of 1795, Senator Burr traveled first to Boston, then to Portsmouth, New Hampshire, to get a feel for the political climate there. Then, in September, traveled south on a three-month journey, which would take him to Richmond, Virginia, then to visit Jefferson at Monticello, before he circled back to the capital city under construction, Washington, D.C., before proceeding north to Philadelphia. So he did this kind of whirlwind tour around the nation to kind of get a sense of what's going on. Because he had set his mind on national politics. And I mentioned this was the late summer of 1795. 1796 was a presidential election year. So we've discussed this election in depth in other parts of the podcast, so we're not going to go into too many details. Right. But we should just note here that Burr was put forward as a possible running mate for vice president with Jefferson on the pseudo-Democratic-Republican ticket. So it wasn't really a, a formal ticket like we think of nowadays, but it was like, yeah, Jefferson should probably be president. Burr should probably be vice president. Mm-hmm. But due to the unstructured nature of political factions at the time, he didn't receive all the Democratic-Republican votes in the Electoral College. Though there were a number of Southerners present who were reluctant, the meeting of Senate Democratic-Republicans that Representative Madison called in May did agree to support Burr as Jefferson's running mate over other proposed candidates, including Senator Pierce Butler of South Carolina, Senator John Langdon of New Hampshire, and Chancellor Robert Livingston of New York. Burr also secured strong support from Democratic Republicans in Philadelphia, winning over, of course, his friend Albert Gallatin Mm -hmm. and Pennsylvania Chief Justice Thomas McCain to his campaign for the vice presidency. He also enjoyed support in the western states, so... He's getting some some good support from various parts of the nation. But when the votes were tallied, of course, we know Vice President Adams won the election with 71 votes. 
Jefferson took second place with 68, which is why we covered him in the last episode. And Burr came in fourth with only 30 electoral votes. Only 30. Only 30. A few months after the ballots were cast and the election drew to a close, another ending in Burr's career came about. In March 1797, Aaron Burr's tenure to the Senate expired, and he returned to New York City with nothing on the horizon in terms of his political future. Mm. So we've seen kind of this meteoric rise, and then in March 1797, it just stops. Stops. Yeah. Now, at this point, Burr had other matters on his mind, namely his personal finances. Okay. That big home costs a lot to maintain. Say, Richmond Hill. (laughs) Between the failure of bank stock and government securities in the wake of speculation in 1792, and troubles in the land speculation market in 1797, both of which were areas that Burr had invested heavily, the former senator had his hands full trying to get his house in order. Mm, Literally and figuratively. Literally and figuratively. As noted by Eisenberg, quote, investment schemes intertwine the finances of many prominent men, and if one investor suffered major losses, then everyone involved felt the repercussions. Mm. Unfortunately, in order to meet his financial needs, Burr was forced to sell the belongings at his Richmond Hill estate on June 27, 1797. The fun-loving times at the estate were gone, and Burr would have to time and again use Richmond Hill as collateral on loans to address other debts he had incurred. So he's starting to fall into this debt cycle that we see with other figures like Jefferson. Mm, I was thinking Jefferson. Interesting. Yeah. His financial setbacks would also negatively impact his family as his stepson, Frederick Prevost, who had signed a bond for Burr, was forced to sell his house and farm in order to cover Burr's debt when his stepfather could not pay. Ooh, wow. That's rough. Yeah. And again, this is kind of the same thing with Jefferson. You see what really drove him over the edge. You know, he was heavily in debt already, but he had co-signed on a loan for a friend who He was like, oh, of course he's going to pay it back. And then he didn't. And Jefferson's nail on the hook. And same thing. So his stepson had co-signed a loan for him, for Burr. And when he couldn't pay, the stepson had to pay it. So I wonder how that impacted their relationship. I wouldn't imagine that it would impact it well. I'm sure it didn't. But his financial situation could not keep him from politics for long. Because in April 1797, Burr, quote, helped select a slate of Republican candidates from New York City to run for the state legislature. Now, funny enough, he's putting together this slate of candidates. His name ends up on it. And so he and the slate won the election by a two-to-one margin. Mm. Burr also used his presence in New York City to strengthen his ties with Virginian friends being on hand to greet James Monroe upon his return in June 1797 from serving as U.S. Minister to France. His presence, however, meant that he ended up in the middle of a confrontation between Monroe and Alexander Hamilton. Here we go again. Here we go again. So, the Reynolds affair, so I mentioned Maria Reynolds before Hamilton had had an affair with her. By this point, and and again, we're not going to go into details of this, Monroe knew of the affair but had basically promised to keep it a secret. Mm -hmm. Then the affair ends up in the newspapers. Okay. And Hamilton thinks that Monroe 
was the leak, that Monroe was the one who spread the gossip. And so he's not happy. Monroe comes to New York City and he's like, hey, dude, what's up? We got to settle this. And Burr urged Monroe to keep a cool head about the matter and for months served as a buffer when Monroe wanted to turn up the heat in the exchange of letters between him and Hamilton. Wow. Imagine him being the cooler head, given what happens eventually. (laughs) This is one of those ironic points in history, given what's to come. Yes. So Hamilton published a lengthy pamphlet outlining his defense in the Reynolds matter, and friends of both kind of discussed what to do. They were like, we really don't want them to end up on the dueling ground. Mm -hmm. We need to do something. A meeting of Democratic Republicans was even organized in November by Jefferson and others to discuss the matter. Burr ultimately cautioned all involved to just let the matter drop. He's like, look, tensions are high now. Let's just let things sit. Mm -hmm. And he was right. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, fade it by the end of the year. You should have took your own advice, my friend. I know. If only. If only. Burr was also approached by Vice President Jefferson on political matters, as well as a request from the VP for Burr to serve as a legal counsel for a friend. So he's really building these connections with these prominent leaders, including the vice president. Mm -hmm. In January 1798, Burr arrived in Albany, New York, accompanied by his daughter Theodosia, Theodosia Jr., of course, Mm -hmm. to take up his seat in the state assembly. Theodosia described the state capital as follows, quote, Albany is not as much like purgatory as I had expected to find it. <laughs> Bring an endorsement. <laughs> wow. Albany, not, not purgatory. purgatory. <laughs> Albany, better than I thought. <laughs> Albany, it's like a whole other country. <laughs> Burr quickly rose as a leading legislative figure in Albany and political leader in New York. Burr's work to get the slate of Democratic-Republican candidates from the city elected to the state assembly was only a first step in improving the faction's chances at the ballot box. So at this point, you know, Federalists had been pretty prominent in New York, but Burr was starting to help to turn the tide towards Democratic-Republicans. As Eisenberg explains, quote, to reap significant gains in the assembly elections, they had to improve their commercial image. Unlike their Southern Republican allies, the New Yorkers had to stop appearing to represent only the yeoman farmer if they were to retain power. So at this point, the Federalist stronghold in New York was New York City. Mm -hmm. And Burr had managed to get candidates elected from New York City. Right. And that's the thing, like his commercial ties really played into that. Again, from Eisenberg, quote, as a leader of the assembly, He shaped a progressive commercial agenda that promoted internal improvements, a fairer tax system, liberal banking practices, lower municipal taxes, and debtor relief. This allowed him to appeal to what we now think of as white-collar and blue-collar workers. Okay. So, in the wake of the XYZ affair and the belief that war with France could break out at any day, in June 1798, a military committee was assembled to advise on the defense of New York Harbor. Since it was just a citizen's organization, it had no official authority, but the folks involved were all named for the official offices that they held and the impact that they could have in coordinating the efforts. 
Burr was named to the committee to serve as a liaison with the New York State Assembly, and he'd find himself partnered in this work with Nail General Alexander Hamilton. Oh, yeah. Who had been appointed as Inspector General and the second in command to the Commander in Chief of American Forces, George Washington. Mm -hmm. Hamilton and Burr would find themselves on the same side in this instance. Whoa. I know. Is it snowing outside? It doesn't happen too often, but this is one of the few times that Burr and Hamilton see eye to eye, and they agree. They were both proponents for strengthening national defense. For his part, Burr would work within the state assembly to pull together, quote, a fragile coalition that reached agreement on a bill worth over $1 million, which was a massive appropriation for its time. Unfortunately, the final bill would only provide $200,000 for rebuilding harbor defenses, but it was better than nothing. Hamilton even wrote to his successor at the Treasury Department, Oliver Walcott Jr., in late June 1798, asserting that he hoped, quote, that the administration may manifest a cordiality to him, i.e. Burr, Uh at a time that rumors were circulating that Burr was being considered for the post of U.S. Quartermaster General. So, wow, strange bedfellows. I know. For once, Hamilton is actually wanting to advance Burr's chances. Is it sabotage or is it what? It seems like it was genuine Hmm. that he was actually saying, you know what? This guy isn't all that bad. We kind of see eye to eye on this and he would be good in the army. The rumor was real enough that President Adams brought up the matter with General Washington. But Washington noted that, quote, By all that I have known and heard, Colonel Burr is a brave and able officer. But the question is whether he has not equal talents at intrigue. And here we get to Burr's reputation. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, Burr would not get the post, but it does speak to a rare moment of bipartisanship and a highly polarized moment in political history. Before long, though, Burr would be on the outs with Hamilton and the Adams administration as he worked to raise bail for a printer who had been arrested for, quote, libel against the president and drafted a message for the Democratic Society of New York, quote, urging action against British attacks on American shipping. Meanwhile, Burr continued to cultivate key lieutenants like his brother-in-law, Dr. Joseph Brown, and Robert Swartwild. As Burr continued to accumulate clout and supporters, he saw an opportunity to put into place an operation that could critically boost Democratic-Republican efforts in New York. Dr. Joseph Brown, in July 1798, presented a plan to the Common Council, quote, for establishing a state-chartered private company that would supply water to New York City from the Bronx River. That sounds innocent and innocuous enough. Yeah. But Burr saw in this proposal as it moved from the city to the state for approval, a golden opportunity. At this point, the finances of New York City were controlled by the Bank of New York and a branch of the Bank of the United States. Mm -hmm. Federalist merchants dominated both of these institutions and used their resources to fund their economic and political efforts. Mm -hmm. Burr knew that if Democratic Republicans were to have a chance to overtake the Federalists at the state level, they would need a bank that could work for their interest and help provide financial aid to those classes of society turned away from the Federalist banks. So even banking 
was political at the time. And another wedge between him and Hamilton, I'm sure. And another wedge between him and Hamilton. Yeah. And Burr looks at this and he says, you know, okay, if we're going to compete, we really have to compete. So thus, in February 1799, he put together a six-person committee of prominent city leaders to convince the Common Council to rescind its approval of Brown's proposal and instead adopt a proposal that he had drafted in conjunction with Alexander Hamilton. Oh, my. Despite their differences, Hamilton understood the basic logic of Burr's proposal for a private company that would keep the city, the state, or the taxpayers from bearing the burden of the endeavor. It also helped that Burr had agreed to put Hamilton's brother-in-law, John Barker Church, on the board. So, if you're looking for finances, market economy, who better to go to than Hamilton? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And this is all for the good of New York City. We've worked for the good of New York City before. Let's do it again. Once the council agreed and the proposal was sent to Albany for approval, while it was en route, Burr made some key changes. Mm -hmm. The city was supposed to have a third of the stock in the company, but Burr reduced that to a minuscule amount that would prevent the Federalist-dominated city government from exerting any control. Burr also increased the number of directors from 7 to 12 and included representatives from all the key factions in the state political schema on the board. More importantly, though, Burr, quote, inserted a clause in the charter which permitted the company to use its surplus capital for other unnamed enterprises solely for its own benefit. This was the clause that Burr knew would allow him to turn what was supposed to be a water company into a bank. Oh. In late March 1799, the State Assembly approved the plan, this plan that Hamilton helped with. Mm-hmm. And the Manhattan Company was chartered. As described by Eisenberg, quote, The charter was not bound by time. It did not have to be renewed at any future date. It existed in perpetuity for as long as the company provided water to the city. Mm. Shielded from state interference, the Manhattan Company could never be dismantled. Through mergers, the Manhattan Company lives on even to this date. Wow. As part of J.P. Morgan Chase. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about a legacy. Okay, yeah, yeah. Burr would get the venture off to a good start at setting the public share price at $50, which is, quote, a fraction of what other banks typically charge for their stock. And when the company opened its stores in September, quote, it did as promised, extending services beyond the usual client base of merchants and lawyers. Not only was the Manhattan Company a shot in the arm for Democratic-Republican efforts in New York, but through favorable loans, it would keep Aaron Burr financially afloat for a number of years. He set up a bank that helped to benefit him personally. Mm-hmm. He's a rather opportunistic. Um, well, <laughs> yeah. bugger, bugger. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Despite this success, the same year would bring some problems Spurs' way. In 1799, 
Hamilton shared with his brother-in-law, John Barker Church, a rumor that Burr had offered fellow politicians bribes to benefit a land syndicate, and Church began spreading the rumor to others. Mm. Now, this wasn't so much a rumor as actual fact. This was true. Mm -hmm. We do know that in order to secure a deal for the Holland Land Company, Burr did arrange for leading New York politicians to be bribed. But it was a common practice, and Hamilton himself had previously tried to get a deal for the same company that would benefit his father-in-law. Still, it was something no one wanted talked about publicly. You know, everybody knew it happened. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Mm -hmm. Nobody talked about it. But now, Church was bringing it to light. When Burr received word of the rumor and tracked down the source of the gossip to Church, he challenged Church to a duel in the fall. Now, I feel it important to note that this was, in fact, Burr's first duel. First? First. How many duels did this dude have? Two. Okay. So we know the big one coming up, but wow, so two duels. This is one of two duels Mm. that Aaron Burr fought in his life. And obviously, yeah, okay. The two met on the dueling ground, and Burr barely escaped disaster, quote, when a bullet passed through his coat after the first fire. Now, thankfully for all, all involved, Church decided to apologize as they were preparing for their second round, and thus the duel was ended. Okay. But this is definitely foreshadowing what's to come. Now, despite the new instrument of the Manhattan Company, as it wasn't fully up and running yet, Democratic Republicans suffered in the polls in New York City in 1799. Eisenberg notes that, though the ticket lost, which meant that Burr was also denied another term in the State Assembly, it wasn't, quote, by the margin predicted, as the faction picked up votes in, quote, the Sixth Ward, known for its large number of mechanics, Irish, and French immigrants. Mm Mm-hmm. In this loss, it seems that the seeds were set for future success. Now, while out of office, Burr was able for a time to turn his focus on his legal practice. Remember, he's a lawyer. Yeah. And he certainly had more than enough work to do, with many of his cases at the time finding him on the same side as Alexander Hamilton. Here we go again. Head spinning from all this <laughs> turnabout and, whoa, interesting. <laughs> Which side are they on? Right. Right. So the two would participate in the case of Le Guin v. Gouverneur and Kimball, as well as in the defense of a 23-year-old man, Levi Weeks, who was accused of murder. These cases would take Burr into the presidential election year of 1800, and as I'm sure our audience and you know, Mm -hmm. this would be a key year for Burr. Before I get to that, though, I did want to make a side note that in 1800, a company chartered the year before by Burr and his lieutenant, Robert Swartwout, completed the Cayuga Bridge, which was, at that point, the longest bridge in the world. Oh, wow. It spanned across one of the Finger Lakes in western New York. Again from Eisenberg, quote, It was not just ingenious, but also quite profitable. I don't think it's an exaggeration, however, to say that Burr's attention through April 1800 was principally laser-focused on political matters. So at the time, state legislatures typically chose electors, and so the state elections leading up to a presidential election were key. New York's election was set for April 1800, and Burr started working to guide Democratic-Republican campaign efforts the year prior. 
as Eisenberg notes, quote, he understood that everything boiled down to his being able to secure the greatest number possible of Manhattan assemblymen. Mm -hmm. These 13 individuals would hold the balance of power. That was Burr's calculation as he reported it directly to Jefferson. Though Federalists held a slight advantage in the state Senate, the Assembly voted as a whole, and a simple majority would determine if the state's electors would be all Federalist or all Democratic-Republican. As described by Eisenberg, quote, he, i.e. Burr, dispatched his staff to collect data and profile the city's voters in terms of partisan allegiance. Mm. He knew which Republicans would contribute money, who would volunteer their time at the polls, and who could only be counted on to vote. What is now standard practice, basing campaign decisions on voter behavior, at this time in American history, startled the Federalist, unaccustomed to such ingenuity. So this is, and you said this earlier, that he seems like a man ahead of his time. Mm-hmm. This is a well-oiled machine. Yeah. This, is, this is a political machine that we're not going to see for quite a few decades and possibly even, you know, arguably a hundred years. He's running what we think of as a modern campaign. Yeah. Now, granted, the, the size of the electorate is, is to be taken into account, but yeah, this is very advanced. For exactly. 1800. Exactly. He briefed Vice President Jefferson on his efforts during a quick trip to Philadelphia in January 1800. So he's working closely with Jefferson. Keep that in mind. Okay. As important as his get-out-the-vote effort was, Burr knew that he needed a top-notch ticket to win the day. Thus, and again, we'll discuss this more in his episode, he managed to convince former Governor George Clinton, so George Clinton was out of the governorship at this point, managed to convince him as well as General Horatio Gates to stand for election along with other revolutionary veterans, quote, prominent merchants, mechanics, and trusted ex-assemblymen who had recently served with him in the lower house. He also made sure that the major Democratic-Republican factions were all represented on the ticket. One prominent name that was missing, however, was Burr's own. So unlike the last time, he didn't go ahead and write in his name. Mm. He was like, we need a strong ticket, and he's got other ambitions in mind. Mm-hmm. So he's like, let's just build a strong ticket. Mm-hmm. I don't need to be on it. Mm. Burr also didn't play his cards until the Federalist announced their ticket, which was underwhelming, to say the least. Again, from Eisenberg, quote, the Federalists had shown too little zeal and rather hasty planning. So they had put together this slapdash ticket and they're like, okay, here's, here's our folks. And then all of a sudden you hear the music. You see the lights. Here's the Democratic Republican ticket for the state assembly. We have George Clinton. We have Horatio Gates. You know, you really, he created this event. He was like, okay, we're going to wow folks with this ticket. And Burr was the campaign manager for all this. Mm -hmm. His home became campaign headquarters for Democratic Republicans for two months with, quote, committees in session day and night. Refreshments were always on the table and mattresses were set up 
for temporary repose in the rooms. Mm. So he is hunkering down. This is HQ. April 29th would see if Burr's efforts had paid off as polls open. That day, Burr posted himself, quote, outside the polling place for the critical 7th Ward. Ten hours without intermission. Goodness gracious. This dude has a lot of tenacity. He has a lot of tenacity. He is one. He gets into the fray. He, it really seems like he is detail-oriented. He knows what's going on in the trenches. And he always has a bigger play in mind. Right. Burr's leadership was praised by contemporaries, with one describing him as, quote-unquote, astonishing, and another, quote, recommending Burr as a general far superior to your Hamiltons, as much so as a man is to a boy. Okay, yet another wedge. And you really see this. Like, Hamilton, for all that he understood, he struggled to figure out how to run a political party. He struggled to figure out how to run political campaigns. Burr knew how to do that. When the votes were counted, Democratic Republicans had won all 13 assembly seats, and all of New York's electors were now in Jefferson's column. Or so they thought. So they thought. Little did Burr and the Democratic Republicans know that Federalists were plotting and Hamilton endorsed the scheme to have the Federalist Governor John Jay choose the state's electors in a presidential contest by calling a special session of the current legislature, which was controlled by Federalists, to change the law of how electors were chosen. Hmm. So this was sour grapes. Uh, They knew as soon as the election was over, we've lost the state. And they tried to figure out a way to avoid that. Now, in one of the most noble moments of his career, Jay refused to do so. He refused this plan. He was like, look, we lost. The public spoke. We've got to agree with it. If only all politicians saw things that way. Uh, Yeah, wouldn't that be nice? But I digress. Shortly after the decisive election in New York, Democratic Republicans met in a caucus in Philadelphia on May 11th to decide on their candidates for president and vice president. Naturally, the choice of Jefferson for the top of the ticket was unanimous, but there was some deliberation about who should be his running mate. Representative Albert Gallatin was given the choice of deciding, and he knew it had to be one of two New Yorkers, George Clinton or Our guy, Burr in the saddle. Gallatin then delegated the decision to his father-in-law, James Nicholson, who was already lavishing praise on Burr. Mm. Clinton made the decision easier when, in his conversation with Nicholson, he declined to be considered for the candidacy. Thus, Burr became, unanimously, Jefferson's running mate in 1800. Okay. Though Burr had been ahead of his time in previous elections, With this one, Burr mostly stuck with the established convention and only campaigned for the Democratic-Republican ticket behind the scenes. In September, he traveled through New England with his uncle, Pierpont Edwards, and during the trip met with Rhode Island Governor 
Arthur Fenner, who promised Burr that some of the state's electoral votes would go to Jefferson. Now, Fenner actually didn't pull this one out. That didn't end up being the case, mm. but Lip whatever. Service. Lip service. Though the time may have been more low-key for Burr, letters and newspapers across the nation were speculating about backroom deals to decide the election or predicting doom if the other political faction won. By the end of November, there was a three-way tie with Adams, Burr, and Jefferson all having 65 votes and the Federalist vice presidential candidate, Charles Coatsworth Pinckney, having 64. Interesting. The only state left to cast electoral votes was Pinckney's home state of South Carolina. Mm. It was hoped that perhaps Pinckney's being a native of that state would work in his favor, and he could overtake the others for the presidency. However, efforts of Federalists such as Alexander Hamilton to intervene in the situation backfired, and when talk increased of having an all-Southern ticket of Jefferson and Pinckney, so we've already seen a split ticket with right. Adams and Jefferson, yeah. so now Jefferson and Pinckney, both Southerners, these are our folks. The local newspaper in Charleston published a strong endorsement of Burr, which described him as follows, quote, Endowed with a mind vast, liberal, and comprehensive, America owns not a citizen more fitted than Colonel Burr to be placed at the head of her government. With an energy and decision of character peculiar to himself, while other men are debating, he resolves, and while they resolve, he acts. Thus, when the Democratic-Republican-led State Assembly convened in early December, they cast their votes for Jefferson and Burr, which was all well and good and chill until folks started to do the math. Uh-huh. With Jefferson and Burr both having 73 electoral votes, and with the votes not being designated as a vote for president or vice president, so we discussed this in the last right. two episodes, right. Yeah. by default, all the votes were for president. And thus, the two running mates were tied, and the election would be thrown to the U.S. House of Representatives to decide as stipulated in the Constitution. Mm-hmm. Before he knew for certain that they would tie, Vice President Jefferson wrote to Burr from the new nation's capital, Washington, D.C., about his concerns that a tie would lead Federalists to delay the choice in the House until past the inauguration date, which would thus cause a Federalist put into the role of President pro tempore of the Senate to become president, as was the succession law at the time. Mm -hmm. So, again, like we've seen, we already saw in New York, Federalists were kind of scheming when things didn't go their way. And Jefferson was saying, I think this is about to happen again. I think they're wanting to keep a Federalist as president rather than choose between the two of us. Mm -hmm. If Jefferson was in any way concerned that Burr would try to use the situation to his advantage, in his reply, Burr reassured Jefferson that, quote, My personal friends are perfectly informed of my wishes on the subject and can never think of diverting a single vote from you. Now, Alex, remember that quote uh -huh. as we go along. Okay. When the result was finally known, as noted by Eisenberg, quote, Jefferson Burr responded to the crisis differently, receiving dissimilar reports, some accurate, some grossly distorted. Neither candidate had complete control over the outcome. 
Both had to depend on others to carry out their wishes, as Burr confided to Jefferson. On February 11, 1801, the electoral votes were officially counted, and immediately after, the House began balloting, with each state delegation having one vote and a majority, which at that point was nine state delegations required to settle the matter. Again from Eisenberg, quote, Partisanship seriously compromised what should have been a straightforward procedure. The election could not be resolved without Federalist cooperation, and this gave them the upper hand in any negotiations, as, due to the composition of the House at the time, Jefferson was only guaranteed at most eight votes. Mm. Thus, it seemed that Jefferson's nightmare scenario of a Federalist becoming president in contradiction to the vote might well come to play. Or, there was another option. Some Federalist leaders, knowing Burr's record, saw a possibility of turning him to their side. Despite his assertions that he felt the vote should go to Jefferson as president, including a letter that he wrote intending for it to be published to the public, as it was pronouncing that, quote, every man who knows me ought to know that I should utterly disclaim all competition. They still felt that there was more wiggle room with Burr than Jefferson. And since there was a contest already, maybe he was the better choice. Back in New York, as soon as Alexander Hamilton realized that this was a viable possibility that Aaron Burr, the Aaron Burr, may become president, he started drafting letters to key Federalists that ran along the following lines. Quote, For heaven's sake, let not the Federalist Party be responsible for the elevation of this man. This man. This burr in my saddle. This burr in my saddle. What are you thinking? Are you... Have you lost your minds? Yes. Hamilton was like, no. No, please. For the love of God, no. Yeah, exactly. Hamilton portrayed himself as being an expert on Burr's character given their lengthy relationship and, as Eisenberg notes, quote, there are still chroniclers of the election of 1800 who rely on Hamilton's letters as authentic and reasoned artifacts. Mm. So remember that. Uh So Hamilton's accounts of Burr are what people turn to as proof point of Burr's character. Eisenberg also notes her belief that Hamilton, at this point, was worried more about Burr taking on a leadership role with the Federalists than the prospect of Jefferson becoming president. As she wrote, quote, In Hamilton's mind, having a rival within his own party and from his own state was far more dangerous than a Jefferson presidency. It meant the end of his political career. Yeah. So, was it really about Burr was this dangerous man? Or was it that Burr was a dangerous man in terms of Hamilton's political future? Right. Democratic and Republican leaders, meanwhile, scrambled to determine how to proceed. James Madison proposed an idea for Jefferson and Burr to issue a joint proclamation to call on the 7th United States Congress to assemble prior to its start date of March 4, 1801, in order to decide the presidential contest. Apparently, both Jefferson and Burr liked this idea, but nothing came of it. Meanwhile, 
Representative Samuel Smith, Democratic Republican from Maryland, urged Byrd to remove his name from contention in the presidential contest prior to the House vote, which would give the presidency to Jefferson. However, it would also make President Adams the next highest vote getter and thus Jefferson's vice president. Mm. In that plan, Burr would end up with nothing. Nothing, yes. So you can understand why he didn't agree to this. Mm. Smith kept pushing the matter, however, including in an agreed-upon meeting in Philadelphia in early January. Eisenberg does note, though, that this pressure seemed to be coming solely from Smith, as there is no record of Jefferson, Madison, or Gallatin, the three leading Democratic Republicans, ever suggesting that Burr should resign from the contest. In fact, there are letters showing their praise for Burr in his conduct at this time. Despite some rumors at the time and assertions from future historians, quote, that Burr and his agents were jockeying among Republicans and Federalists open to a deal of some sort, the primary sources just do not present this evidence. Rather, it seems that there is a preponderance of evidence that Burr was telling everyone who would listen, quote, that he will not countenance a competition for the presidency with Mr. Jefferson. Further, as Eisenberg points out, it doesn't make sense for Burr to abandon the Democratic-Republican Party at this point after having worked so hard earlier in the year for the party. Burr was only 46 at the time, so there was still plenty of time to continue to build up his role in the party and try for the presidency on his own merits after Jefferson retired. So, so much of the history, so much of the story with Burr has been that he was conniving and scheming in in the election of 1800. But why? We see him as this astute political operator. Mm -hmm. That would be foolish and foolhardy if he did so. It would wreck his political future. So why would he do it? And we have no evidence that he was doing anything of the sort. Indeed, while the election was being debated, Burr was dealing with a personal development as his beloved daughter Theodosia on February 2nd, 1801, wed Joseph Alston of South Carolina in Albany, New York. Theodosia had been concerned for years about her father's financial distress, and despite her friends giving negative reviews of Alston, Theodosia saw this, quote, South Carolinian who was due to inherit over 6,000 acres and 253 slaves as a means of ensuring the financial stability of her family. The two had met while Alston was traveling in the North. The Southern aristocrat had attended the College of New Jersey in Princeton for a brief time and had studied law. So, you know, we see this, how his financial distress is continuing to impact his family to the point that his daughter signs up to marry this guy who folks were saying, yeah, no, 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 swipe the other way. Right, right. Because she knew he was rich. Yeah. Back to the presidential contest. When the first ballots were cast in the House on February 11th, one after the other ended up with the same result. Eight state delegations for Jefferson, six for Burr, and two with a split vote. The next two days saw a similar result time and again. Finally, though, on Tuesday, February 17th, the deadlock was ended as Representative James Bayard, 
Federalists from Delaware, got some of his Federalist colleagues to join him in abstaining from a vote on the 36th ballot in exchange for an agreement from Democratic Republicans to continue to strengthen the Navy and to keep one of Bayard's friends in his appointed office. Finally, Jefferson's vote count passed the required mark with 10 state delegations voting for him versus four for Burr and two states abstaining. With that, Thomas Jefferson was officially set to become the third U.S. president with Aaron Burr as his vice president. Baird would write after the contest that Burr had actively worked against Federalist efforts to elect him president over Jefferson. To Hamilton, Baird wrote that, quote, the means existed of electing Burr, but they required his cooperation. He will never have another chance of being president. Mm -hmm. So, that brings us to the question, why do so many historians continue to argue that Burr was conniving during the election for his own purposes? As Eisenberg wrote, quote, Burr serves as a convenient scapegoat, allowing historians to simplify or explain away the division, disorder, and mayhem of the election crisis. The fact of the matter was that this was a constitutional crisis, the first in a young nation's history, and rumors were flying fast. On both sides, calls were issued to use extra-legal means and even taking up arms to influence the result. Again, doesn't sound familiar at all. Doesn't sound familiar at all. This has not happened ever since. Nope. (laughs) (laughs) Thankfully for all involved, it did not come to that. And with the contest settled acceptably, preparations could finally be made for the upcoming inauguration. It wouldn't be so much presidential election politics, but rather New York politics that would be key to ensuring that the first year of his vice presidency was a bumpy one. Burr supporter Edward Livingston had announced his intent to be a candidate for mayor of New York City, and the vice president-elect made his support of Livingston known in February 1801. As the Federalist Party had gone down in defeat in New York in the 1800 election cycle, this meant that, moving forward, the main political battles were amongst the Democratic-Republican factions led by George Clinton, Chancellor Robert Livingston, and Aaron Burr. As Clinton's nephew, DeWitt Clinton, was also interested in the position as mayor of New York, while Burr made preparations to take up his new role, a political confrontation was already in the works, despite Livingston's initial success in winning the mayorship. We'll talk more about that in our next episode, however, once we get into Burr's actual vice presidency, because this will be the first of a two-part episode on the life and career of Aaron Burr. Because there's not a lot to talk about, if you couldn't tell. There is not a lot to talk about. So, Alex, we are poised at Aaron Burr taking the vice presidency. What are your initial thoughts thus far? It's going to be an interesting ride. It is definitely going to be an interesting ride. Are you surprised by what I've shared thus far about him? Well, his personal life definitely did not know as much about that. So I can see where some of that will influence how he behaves on the political stage. But, uh, I mean, wow, just a very complex person. A lot to kind of take on. Wow. Yeah. Just 
a lot to take on. No wonder this is a two-part. There is a good reason that this is a two-parter. And so we will come back to you before too long with part two of Aaron Burr. In the meantime, thank you so much for listening. If you would like to look at the sources that we've used for this episode, please go to the website, presidenciespodcast.com. You can reach out via email at presidenciespodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. If you don't already, please follow us on social media, on Facebook, Macedon, Post, and Blue Sky. We're available at Presidencies. On Twitter, and I refuse to call it the other thing, we are available at Presidencies89. And on Threads and Instagram, we are available at Presidencies Podcast. I thank you so much for listening, and I hope that you will join us for the next episode. Believe me, as bumpy and chaotic and drama-filled as this episode has been, you ain't seen nothing yet. Burr in the saddle, get ready. Get ready, strap in. We have a ride ahead of us with his vice presidency and his post-vice presidency. Especially the post-vice presidency. Especially the post-vice presidency. So until then, thank you for listening. Stay safe and healthy. Be kind to one another. And take care, dear friends. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased, and essential world news daily.